This podcast is produced by Clarence Valley Community Church. If you benefit from our ministry and you would like to support us, details can be found at our website, cvcc.com.au. There you can also find out more details about our church. Today we're going to be looking at two texts specifically, 1 John 2, 15 through 17 and 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. I'm going to read those two texts now. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but anyone who does the will of God abides forever. And 1 Timothy 4 verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thankfulness by those who believe and know the truth. For everything, God, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to thank you so much for every good gift that comes from you. Lord, we also want to ask that you would guard our hearts, that we would not love the world or the things in the world, that we would not be devoted to them, but that we would be devoted to you. Help us with this, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, I've been in Sydney for most of the week. And one of the things that uh, came out of that for me, along with a whole bunch of training and and education, uh, was a reminder of just how much I love the Clarence Valley. I love the Clarence Valley. I actually really love being here. It's it's such beautiful country. You know, the, the, down McLean Way, you get the river, you get the hills. You've just got to walk up to the top of the lookout, and it's just panoramic. It's beautiful. And then when we drive here this morning, we're seeing all the purple flowers and we see the cows. Jane and I love animals. There's animals. There's so many lovely things about being here. And then we get to come into this building. I actually really love 99.9% of this building. That's not included. I love it. I love being here and I love being amongst you. I love my library. I actually really love my wife. She's pretty good value. I love my car. We haven't always had such a nice car, but I love it. Here's my question, though. Am I wrong? Am I wrong to love the Clarence Valley? Am I I wrong to love my library or my wife? After all, there is an imperative command that comes out of 1 John 2.15 that You're not to love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Am I wrong then to love the Clarence Valley? I don't think so. There's a growing movement and a push 
towards not piety. Piety is good. But a growing push towards pietism within the conservative church today. It's, a, it's an idea that you, that you get the good from God by denying yourself of things. That's not what's in mind here. It's not that we reject good things of the world, but that we embrace the good things that God has given to the world through common grace. We believe in common grace. We believe that, the God, that God has actually bestowed upon the world good things, not only for Christians, not only for believers, but through all people. Non-believers are capable of doing wonderful things. I love modern medicine. Trust me, if it was not for modern medicine at this early age, I would probably not be here. Good things given by God are worthy of thankfulness, not rejection. What does John mean, though? What does he mean in this imperative command, do not love the world? The word love is, is an imperative. It comes from the word agape. It involves the allure that something has that one wishes to enjoy. It's what love is. You tend to love things because they're lovely. Right? Who, whoever says to their spouse, I love you, without them being lovely. I don't think my wife would ever be happy with the idea of me saying to her, I love you despite the fact that I find you repulsive. That's, that's, not, that's not how love works. Love involves an allure, a drawing, something that we wish to enjoy. That's what's involved here. So do not, do not love the world. I guess then it, it, we have to ask the question, what does John mean by the world word world? Now, uh, we, this, is a, this is a Greek word, cosmos. John uses this word in a range of different ways, the big spectrum. Sometimes he's just talking about creation, just the, the things in creation. Sometimes he's talking about people, the people within creation. Often, though, when John uses the word cosmos, what he's referring to is this evil present age, the, the evilness in the world, that, that which makes the world evil. That's what he means by world. And I think that that is also the case in places like John 3.16, for God so loved the world. The thing that's so shocking about that is that what John actually has in mind, that, that God loves this evil present age. That then starts to give us some context about the idea of love. What does he mean by do not love the world? He does, means do not love this evil present age. Have a look at the way in which he defines this in verse 16. He says, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. There's a negative tone here. This is what he has in mind, this, this negative, this sinfulness within the world, those sinful desires or Perhaps even just those very human desires that we have. Love for the world and the things of the world are set in contrast to the love of the Father. There's no middle ground here. Notice, do not love the things of the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There's a lot of conversation here about exactly what's going on. Is this, is this uh, the, the love of the Father is out there? And if, if you love the world, then, then that love which is out there will not come into here? Or is this talking about the idea that within us, that if you love the world, there is no love? And I think it's the second. 
This idea of within the seconds, it's, 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 a, it's an, a, a genitive for Micah, for Micah's sake. The, the idea that within us there is no love. If we love the world, we do not love the Father. There is no middle ground. And this is something that's actually quite shocking. No middle ground. You can't sit on the fence on this one. That to, to, to love the Father, to be in love with him, is so captivating that there is no way that you could possibly love the world. And think about that for a moment. Everything that God stands for, the fact that he is upright and holy and good and loving, and, and the fact that he actually gives common grace, he's caring towards everybody within the world. He's not selfish. If you are in love with the world and the things of the world, you're not like God the Father. If you're going to say that you love this one, the Father, who is holy and righteous and upright and generous and kind, you can't on the flip side also say, I love the exact opposite. These people that John are talking to are people that walk in the light. If we can, we just go back. We'll go back to uh, 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 9. He says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is, the, this, is this first idea of what it means for love. The, the idea of these people is that they are people who walk in the light. They're of people of the light. They see the way the world actually is. This is what it means to walk in the light. It's easy if you're walking around in darkness not to know how the world actually is. Imagine, imagine if we just extinguished the sun and we were actually able to walk around this world. Imagine if we took away all light. How would you walk around? I mean, the vast majority of the creatures right down in the sea, their eyes are practically useless because no light gets down there. Eyes are pointless. But that's not the way of God's people. Those who are in Christ, they see clearly. They understand the way that the world really is. Desires, though. The desires of the flesh. This is his point. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father. If you're, if you're a people of the light, you see this clearly. You can't mistake this. Flesh, desire. Perhaps your translation, instead of desire, uses lusts. Lusts of the flesh. Lusts of the eyes and the pride of life. I think the ESV gets it right with desires. Now, it's true that flesh is often used in a negative to, to mean that which is sinful. Paul often uses this term flesh for that which is sinful. That could be simply what's meant here. The desires of that which is sinful, those sinful desires. But John has another category, and that is that flesh is merely human. It's that which is human within us as opposed to that which is spiritual. 
It's what comes naturally to us, as those desires which come naturally to us. Think about John 3, 6. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Or John 6, 3. It is the spirit who gives life, and the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So I think when John tends to use this term flesh, what he just means is that which is natural to us. We have natural desires. Remember, remember R.C. Sproul years ago, he, he, um, he solved the quandary for me about free will. Uh, he spoke about this idea of the fact that if you take a dog and you don't feed that dog for a week, perhaps you, you, uh, you, you go on holidays, you leave it with a friend, you come back, you realize it's not eating anything, and so what do you do? You run to your fridge and you grab a, a, a cabbage and you grab a T-bone steak, and you go and put them at the opposite ends of your property, and then you let the dog go. Which is the dog going to go for? The steak, right? We, none of all of us know this. The dog has made a choice but it's made a choice that's, incons- that's consistent with its nature. This is that which its nature drives it towards, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, you might conclude if that dog went and ate the cabbage before the steak that that week had changed something in the very nature of the dog. That which is natural to us. We have natural desires. We have humanly, fleshly desires. The desires of the flesh. This just simply is this idea of, of what, what comes natural to your flesh. But the problem is, is that, unfortunately, because of our fallen nature, that which is merely natural will be driven to be satisfied in ways that God never intended it to be satisfied. We see this often, don't we? There's nothing wrong with eating. It's good. God's good gift to you. But how often do people live for their stomachs? There's, there's nothing wrong with music. It's good. It's a beautiful thing that God has given us. It's almost universal across human experience. We love music. But how often do we take music and we turn it into something that is evil? Sex. Part of God's created order. How often has our world today perverted that? taking it out of the context in which God had actually intended and using it in a way in which is unnatural and a way that God never wanted. This is the problem with our sinful nature. The problem with our sinful nature is it takes good things and it makes idols out of them. This is why our body doesn't naturally crave what is good for us. I don't know about you, I find this to be a rule in my life. Much better that I eat spinach than cake. Why do I want cake? Our flesh doesn't always want what is, what's good for us. And we pervert these things. So the, the desire of the flesh is simply the desires for those things that pertain merely to this life. And that's the point. The desires of the flesh are those things which are a desire for things that are merely this life, which in light of eternity count for nothing. Your eating, your drinking, your music, if it's only for this life, it has no eternal value. And then it, it ends up being worthless and counting for nothing. The desires of the eyes, it, it, this, this is the idea. The idea is that it's a, a short-sighted desire 
for that which only the eyes can physically see. It's those things which our eyes see and they draw us towards. We know that we often can't see the heart of a person. We're drawn to, to that which is outside and that which is external. We're drawn to gold. How come that's innate through the human experience? The desires of the eyes, that which our eyes set upon that become uh, attractive to us, they allure us and they draw us in. And then there's this idea of the pride of life. Now, pride, arrogance, boastfulness is all within the semantic range. But the, the normal word for life is not used here. This is the Greek word zoe. It's, it's bios. Interestingly, there's, there's a, if I'm using Greek, it's, there's a point, okay? Bear with me. Uh, zoe is often used by John, this idea for life, for the redeemed life, that which has been given to us as people who are redeemed. Bios is where we get the word biology. It's physical things in the world, and, and often it's used to mean resources, the resources that one needs to maintain their livelihood. And so here he's speaking of those things which, which secure for us worldly wealth, worldly things. That's what he has in mind. Income, money, investments. That's what he means by life here. Resources. The pride of your resources. The pride, the, the ability to provide for yourself to stock up, to put away, to make sure that you always have enough. There is only, all throughout all of John's writings, there is actually only one other place where John uses this word. And that's in 1 John 3.17. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods, if anyone has the world's goods, that's the word bios, goods. If anyone has the world's goods, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's God's love abide in him? This is what he's getting at. This is what it is to have the pride of life. This is mine. This is is mine. This is for me. This is for my family. This is is to make sure that we have enough. don't, Don't we have a greener lawn? Don't we have a bigger house? Don't we have a nicer car? Don't we have the ability to put on grander parties? This is what he's got in mind. But for John, that's not what it is to have the love of God. To have the love of God is to be sacrificial in your, in your, in your giving for others. If, if you have the world's goods and yet you are, you are hoarding it, you are, you are holding onto it, while the kingdom of God struggles for resource, while your brother or your sister, or your neighbor is going without, there's a problem. And I think this is particularly a problem in our, in our modern Western world because it's actually quite hard for us to look around in our modern Western context and see people who are struggling. Uh, perhaps if you're the, you're, you, might, you might be the kind of person that would be like, yeah, but if my neighbor was actually struggling, I sh- of course I'd be there. Of course I'd be over there. I'd be giving them meals. But it's a test for our heart, isn't it? Am I hoarding my earthly materials at the expense of other things? Or am I the kind of person that is sacrificial in in what I have for the good of others? If not, you might be guilty of the pride 
of life. Verse 17, though, is the crux. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whatever does, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is his point. This world is passing away. This world is here only for a short moment. It's not going to be here forever. And that which, that which is your natural human desire, that which, is, that which draws you and allures you away from God, is pointless. It's worthless. It's arrogance. And it's actually deeply deceptive. The problem with this world is that it lies to us constantly. The world is constantly saying, I can, I can make you happy. I can make you whole. I can give you everything that you need. But it can't. Because what you need, what you need is you need a happiness, you need pleasure, you need joy that will be filled, let your joy be filled and will last for eternity. There is only one way that you can have that and that is if it is rooted and grounded in the love of the Father if it is rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. This is what it is to do the will of God. Think about 1 John 3, 23. Here he says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Right. So, do not love the world or the things in the world. Is John saying then that you can't have good things or that you can't enjoy good things? No. What he's saying is don't have an attachment to this world. Don't, don't, don't make that the rooting and the grounding of your satisfaction of life. In fact, I'm actually shocked by some of Paul's statements in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Paul's, Paul's statements in 1 Timothy 1 through 5 seem to point in another direction to this, this idea of the joy only comes through self-sacrifice, through the denial of all things. He starts off by talking about that the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of de demons, that there's an insincerity of liars and, and those whose consciences are seared. Now, I don't know about you, when I read that text, when I read the introduction to this chapter, my mind automatically goes to, well, of course, there are those people who are going to tell you that it's quite okay to, to indulge your sensualities, your, your lusts, your, your desires. It's, it's going to be quite fine. You can do that. That's okay. Just, just, just live your life. Just do those things which are pleasing to you. But that's not what he goes to. And that's why this, for me, this is so shocking. The, the ones that he has in mind, the ones who are departing from the faith, are those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food. That's, who, that's who he's got in mind here. Those people who come along in their devoted piety, their pietism, this idea of asceticism, those people who are like, you know what, you've got to cut off all joy in this life, all pleasure in this life. Cut it off. Eat just enough to live. And only of those really bland things. 
Don't have anything good in this life. Don't get married. Deny yourself those things, those conjugal rights within marriage. I think that's actually what he's got in mind here. Don't have any pleasure. Those people are the ones that Paul here talks about the fact that are departing from the faith. And we meet these people all the time. I still, I am shocked to this day that I still meet people who want to put food restrictions in. Why? Even Jesus himself, and Jesus himself in Mark 7, 18 through 19, he said this, he said, then you are also without understanding. Do you not see that what goes into the body? Sorry, let me read this again. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Mark then gives us an editorial. Thus, he declares all food clean. All food clean. And so the correct way to understand these things is is the Christian life is not a matter of denial, but it's getting those things which God designed correct. Getting them in the right perspective. And making sure that God is thanked. Here's a really good rule. Is the thing that you are doing able to thank, be thanked God for? Because there are some things in this world that you, if, if you are walking in the light, you couldn't possibly thank God for. Some of them are really obvious. Can it be thanked God for? If it can, if you can thank God for that thing, if you can thank God for what it is that he's given you, if you can have it in such a way as it doesn't have hold on you and control on you, but rather it's, it's building you up in such a way as that you're actually able to enjoy the benefits of God, of having God, and, and an understanding that, that God actually created everything good. This is his point in verse 4. For he created every, everything is good by God, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. There were those in Paul's day who were saying, that which is spiritual is good. That which is physical is bad. And so we need to deny the physical in order to have the spiritual. Paul comes along in another idea, though. He's like, no, no. Everything that God made, he made good. If you can receive it with thanksgiving, Receive it and make sure that God gets the honor. There are two ways of thinking about how to be thankful for that which God gives. The first one is this idea of, I'm going to thank God for every mouthful. I'm going to thank God for every morsel. The other one is, I'm going to enjoy it for the way in which God designed it. I'm going to use it for the way in which God designed it, and I'm going to do it with thankfulness. I'm going to eat it with thankfulness. I'm going to enjoy it with thankfulness in the understanding that none of it belongs to me anyway. None of it's going to satisfy ultimately. Ultimately, everything that we have needs to be used for the good and the kingdom of God and the love of our brothers and sisters and our neighbors. They're two different things. If you can get it in that order, then everything that's been given 
that is good is for your benefit from God. Self-denial is not always that which is righteous. That which is righteous is using that which God has given us in a way in which God has intended it in order that God would get the thanks and the glory for it. The fault is to be driven by that which is temporal as opposed to that which is eternal. If you can get the eternal right, if you can have everything that's temporal in this world and the right perspective of that which is eternal, then you've got everything in the right perspective. And so don't love the world, don't be attached to the world, don't hold on to those things, make sure that you use them in such a way as it makes obvious to the world that that's not where your ultimate love and your ultimate desire is. Get that right. But also remember that God has given good things. He's given good things to be enjoyed so that he might receive thanks and worship. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to thank you for all that you do for us, every way that you love us, everything that you provide for us. We know that we would have nothing good unless it came from your hand. Help us, though, Lord, to not turn those good things into idols. Help us not to be attached to them, but help us to be attached to you, always giving thanks to you for all that you give us, always keeping you and the eternal in the right perspective. And help us to share with those who are within the household of faith and those who are our neighbour in need. Lord, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.